We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Barn to Door and Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. On this, our 50th episode, we welcome Dr. Vandana Shiva. I can't imagine a better person to talk to during this time of environmental and political turmoil. She might understand the threats we face better than anyone else, but she also offers a framework of hope, wisdom, and as she would call it, right action. A fearless advocate for peasant farmers throughout the world, Dr. Shiva is one of the most outspoken critics of industrial agriculture and its dire environmental and spiritual consequences. She's the founder of Navdanya, an India-based organization that advocates for biodiversity, seed sovereignty, and food independence. Navdanya runs an organic farm in the foothills of the Himalayas and counts among its members millions of farmers across India, where the group has set up more than 100 seed banks. She's the recipient of many awards, including the Right Livelihood Award and the Sydney Peace Prize. She's also the author of several groundbreaking books, including Making Peace with the Earth, Soil, Not Oil, and Who Really Feeds the World. Her latest book is called Oneness Versus the 1%, Shattering Illusions, Seeding Freedom. This is the book we desperately need right now. In an age of growing economic inequality, globalization, and relentless corporate propaganda, we need people like her who are willing to stand up and speak the truth. I'm thrilled to be able to share this conversation with you today, but before we get to that interview, we have something a little different. We're starting a new monthly segment for the Tractor Time podcast. Yes, another one. Last month, we introduced Transition Land, a collaboration with the Rodale Institute. Listen to the next episode of this podcast for the next installment of that series. This episode, we're introducing Industrial Ag Watch. Each month, we'll check in with investigative journalist Carrie Gillum to see what stories are emerging within our industrialized food system. Carrie's the author of the 2017 book Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. Whitewash won the coveted Rachel Carson Book Award from the Society of Environmental Journalists, as well as other literary awards. You can also go back and listen to a 2019 podcast we did with Carrie about that book. Her next book comes out next month, and it's called The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. Carrie currently works as a reporter and director of research for U.S. Right to Know. Her work frequently appears in The Guardian, and she has more than 30 years of experience covering food and agricultural policies and practices. She also serves on the Freedom of Information Task Force for the Society of Environmental Journalists. Here's our latest conversation with Carrie Gillum. Carrie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us what's going on in Maiden, Nebraska? You wrote a story recently for The Guardian. Yeah, I did. Gosh, you know, I refer to it sort of as the neo-Nick Nebraska story. This came to my attention, no, oh, you know, a couple of months ago, I guess, in, in late 2020. Um, just some townspeople uh, in this little community, uh, about 500 people, Maiden, Nebraska. It's near the University of Nebraska very rural community and there's an ethanol plant there and the people for the past two or three years have been reporting just awful awful smells 
and uh, health problems, um, you know, sore throats and nosebleeds and headaches and uh, pets getting sick and birds and bees really acting abnormally, uh, bees dying and birds staggering around as though they were drunk um, or disoriented. They've been complaining to regulators and trying to get state lawmakers involved and really just had been met with, you know, thanks, but no thanks, go away, we can't help you. So they had reached out to me to try to look into this. And uh, it took a while and a lot of regulatory documents to go through it. But what we found was that this plant was using pesticide-treated seed corn. You know, neonics often are coated onto um, corn seed and, and other seed. They were using neonic-treated corn seed, seed corn, uh, as a... Um, fuel stock for their ethanol plant um, so that they could ferment this. This is how ethanol is made generally. They take in grains, starchy grains, and ferment it to make the biofuel. And so they were using this uh, discarded, actually kind of worthless seed corn that large companies like Bayer, Syngenta, or others might want to get rid of, but they were able to give it for free to this plant, and then the plant for free could use it to make ethanol. But, you know, sounds like a win-win for everybody, except for the fact that the waste product that was generated, wastewater and these giant piles of sort of what should have been or could have been distiller's grain, was highly, highly toxic. Um, the regulators had been going in there and doing measurements and finding levels of a lot of these uh, insecticides and, and fungicides that were many thousands of times higher than the levels that the EPA say, you know, are safe. So they had really created, I believe inadvertently, a very toxic environment um, and they were contaminating soil and water, even the air as they were trying to burn off some of this waste product as well. And people were getting sick and uh, animals and, and uh, bees and birds were getting sick and dying. So. You know, we did this story uh, in January, and it's remarkable. When in less than a month, people had taken notice. Other media had started doing uh, stories about the plant as well. And uh, just a week or so ago, the regulars actually ordered the plant to close. Well, so let's take a, a step back a little bit and explain for the listeners what neonicotinoids are, how they work. It's a class of pesticide, is that correct? Yeah, so neonicotinoids are, you know, types of insecticides really that are used. There are many different kinds, some more dangerous or more toxic than others. Uh, in particular, they're they're very commonly used around the world, and in particular, uh, you know, there there are they are often coated on seeds. As I said, they use them as seed treatments. And why do they do that? Well, so the plant then, as I mean, it's supposed to be better, I guess, than going out and, you know, spraying uh, insecticides around. And it, and, and it, the plant essentially, as it grows, then the leaves and everything will resist or be toxic to, to these insects that otherwise might, might feed on the plant or might damage the crops. So these neonicotinoids are, you know, now, you know, they're sold in like 120 different countries. And so they can be sprayed on plants, but, but most often you hear about them being um, talked about being coated on seeds. They're used in, you know, with rice, cotton, corn, potatoes, soybeans, uh, about 25% of the global pesticide market. You know, it's, it's a big deal. A lot of money is made off of these neonics, but uh, they are not, when they're coated on seeds like this, the regulation seems to be quite a bit 
lacking, uh, more lax than it is with other pesticides. And that's been a big concern for people for quite some time. You write in your story for The Guardian that this facility in, in Mead, Nebraska was sickening people in the area, sickening animals, insects. But what does the scientific literature say about the health effects of neonicotinoids? Most of the science um, seems to look at sort of what they do to insects, to biodiversity. So there's science out there, you know, looking at, at bees and birds and, and pollinators and who are, you know, perhaps most impacted uh, when the crops uh, that they feed on, you know, um, or the water or the, the soil is getting contaminated. So there's quite a lot of evidence now that they are very damaging to insects in particular, and many countries have started to ban them, actually. So, you know, there's a movement in, in Europe in particular, uh, they've been looking to ban some of the most commonly used ones. The United States, finally, I mean, the EPA is coming around a little bit. In January of last year, they released what they call proposed interim decisions, uh, looking at, you know, various types of neonicotinoids to start trying to regulate them better, to, to try to limit how they're used to better protect insects and, and other pollinators and you know, they are saying, you know, there are potential ecological risks with these pesticides when they're applied to crops. So we really need to be very careful about it. So the company Alt-N that was running this facility, the biofuels facility, what do they say? Alt-N never, this is the name of the ethanol plant. Yeah, they, they never responded to me. And frustratingly enough, regulators also tried to dodge my questions, which, you know, I just found outrageous. And, you know, I had a little conversation with you know, one of the public information officers for the Nebraska Department of Environment and Energy trying to remind her, you know, that she works for the public and that, you know, they should be more responsive. But no, the plant is is largely kept quiet for all, all that we can tell. They look like they are trying to comply now with orders to clean up their facility and figure out a way to get rid of all of this waste. But, you know, it really never should have, should have happened, never should have gotten that way. You know, some of the uh, clothianidin, one of the, the neonicotinoids um, that we know is so dangerous, uh, you know, it was recorded at 427,000 parts per billion. Wow. Uh, you know, and the, the EPA, you know, says these things are, are safe. It's, you know, not well considered safe, about 11 parts per billion, you know. So this was 427,000 compared to 11. So you can see how, how toxic uh, it really was in that in that little town. Now, this is a small village, about 500 residents. Um, have you talked to them? And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to imagine how close this facility is to where people live. Is it, are they being exposed to the neonics through the wind, through water? How is it getting to them? Yeah, I mean, well, they're very concerned um, about their well water, you know, uh, in particular. I just heard from a, a woman again. We've heard from several of them. They've emailed, you know, repeatedly. And uh, these these giant lagoons um, where Alt-N was, was washing its waste into to try to contain it. The state has documents show that, that they've leaked, they have leaky liners, they're not properly cared for, they've overflowed, they've had discharge problems. Uh, discharging into, you know, streams and, and creeks and waterways that flow, you know, down into other other communities. There's an aquifer that runs under that region of Nebraska. So, 
you know, at one point, I mean, all and before regulators cracked down on them, before we wrote about them, they were applying, they were shipping a lot of this waste out to farm fields and, and telling farmers they should spread it over their fields uh, as, as a soil conditioner. And, and so, you know, it's, it's been spread far and wide uh, with these very high levels of pesticides. And the community is afraid that it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to actually, you know, clean up the soil and the water. Well, Carrie, thanks for keeping us informed. Thanks for asking me. (laughs) I want to take this moment to introduce our new sponsor, Barn to Door. They're doing a new segment aimed at helping farmers, and you'll hear that later in this episode. But who are they? Barn to Door powers farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. They help farmers meet buyers' expectations through easy ordering and an accessible brand across all online channels. Farmers use software, services, and resources from Barn to Door to manage and promote their business. The bottom line is this. Farmers that provide convenient buying and delivery options reach more buyers. Data shows farmers can double revenue when they offer online subscriptions and direct delivery. Promote your brand, manage your orders, and keep your profits with Barn to Door, providing the capabilities and support you need to build a thriving farm direct business. Learn more at barntodoor.com forward slash tractor time. Vandana Shiva. I talked via Zoom with Dr. Shiva late on Tuesday evening of this week. I was tired going into the interview, worn down by the torrent of bad news from across the U.S. and the globe. But in India, where she lives, it was morning, and she was wide awake in every sense of the phrase. But I don't think the time of day was the only reason why she radiated with energy and optimism. Despite the fact that Dr. Shiva is routinely standing up against corrupt global power and what she calls the toxic cartels, she embodies joyousness. At first, that might seem incongruous. How can one be joyful in a time of such darkness? But maybe joy in this case is the absence of fear. Maybe that's because Dr. Shiva has seen again and again peasants in her country standing up to power, whether it's the British Empire or Big Ag. Drawing inspiration from the Chipko movement in the 1970s and from the millions of farmers who are today resisting corporate domination, Dr. Shiva believes that a right relationship with the earth is always possible and ever present, even in the bleakest of days. This was a conversation I deeply needed, and I hope you feel the same way. Dr. Shiva, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Ben. I'm struck by a story that you relay in your book about Sir Albert Howard. He uh, traveled to India in 1905, I believe, and he intended to go there to teach them what he saw as superior forms of agriculture but he was really surprised by the, the brilliance of India's peasant farmers. And he goes on to write a book, uh, The Agricultural Testament, based on what he learned there. And it became a kind of Bible for modern organic farming in the West. But another story you tell is very, very different. And that one involves Norman Borlaug, the father of the so-called Green Revolution. He went to India with a very different agenda. Um, And I was wondering if you could contrast those two figures and tell us about the legacy of the Green Revolution, so-called, in India, and what was lost as a result. So Albert Howard was sent by the British Empire 
to India in 1905, at a time when there wasn't a discipline called agriculture. There was an empire. And the empire had an economic botanist. And the economic botanist was the person, the scientist who uh, works for the empire to exploit plants through plantations for raw material. That was the work. Indigo plantations is what led to our first civil disobedience in 1917 when Gandhi joined the peasants and said, we would rather die than grow indigo. Indigo came from India. We dyed the beautiful blue. But under slavery, it was making peasants starve. And Bihar is the part where this Champaran Satyagraha took place. Bihar is where Howard was sent to a place called Pusa, where the agriculture university was supposed to have eventually been set up. There was an earthquake, so it moved to Delhi. So the Pusa Institute, India's big agriculture university, which Howard should have started or was sent to start, is basically Delhi-based. But Howard, as a good scientist, good scientists have open minds. Propagandists are taught to repeat propaganda. Military strategists are basically given the job of implementing invasion. So he was part of a British empire, but a brilliant scientist, as was his wife. And they were good enough scientists to see a reality and let the peasants speak to them and let the best speak to them. And he said, this agriculture of rich biodiversity, lots of insects, no pests in the field has something to teach me. He said, I will make the pest and the peasant my professor. That's the kind of scientist we need. And he made them press professor and wrote this amazing book, The Agricultural Testament, which, as you said, is the Bible of modern organic farming. And he identified two principles of good farming. Good farming is the kind of farming India has done to last 10,000 years of farming. Two principles, biodiversity and diversity. says nature never knows monocultures and uniformity. And good farming doesn't know monocultures. And the second, the real magic, the law of return. The beauty is now, as I've worked on these issues so long, I find this is exactly what Leibig, who's called the father of modern organic chemistry, who's supposed to have brought us the synthetic fertilizers, actually fought the synthetic fertilizers. He brought us the knowledge of the cycling of nutrients and he fought the commercialization and I wrote a forward to the English translation of an 1876 book, The Law of Recycling. So the law of return, the law of recycling, that's how nature works. And these brilliant scientists didn't just understand it deeper, but as Liebig says, that to be a good scientist, you have to fight the altars of falsehood. That's why he wrote that book. Now, Borlaug was not a scientist in that true sense of figuring out how nature works, figuring out how good systems work. He was from the defense lab of Dupont and given the job of how do you take war chemicals and apply them to agriculture across the world? Well, the problem was our agriculture, as Howard observed, was so rich in biodiversity and our breeding we were doing breeding. There's a denial that we were breeders. We couldn't have turned one wild grass into 200,000 rice varieties without breeding. But the 200,000 varieties were denied. Our breeding was denied. Our intelligence was denied. And the, the self-organization of the plants was denied. So our plants were bred 
for multiple purpose. We ate the grain, the straw went back to the soil or went to animal feed, or it went to put the thatch on our roof. There were periods where I was collecting the seeds and some of the best seeds had been saved where the thatch was important. And you can't make a thatch that's not leaky with the dwarf varieties. So our tall varieties, so, I mean, we have to maximize biomass. We've got tall varieties, wonderful diversity of the grain, and be generous to share food with all beings who need food. Food is not a commodity for humans or commodity for global sale. So we applied chemical fertilizers. The World Bank, World Bank came in later. It was the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, Ford Foundation and the USAID that was put, pushing this agenda. And our plants would do a civil disobedience. They were very, they're very Gandhian. And they say, I will not accept your chemicals. And they would lodge, you know. So the lodging of the indigenous crops was, in my view, a civil disobedience of the plants. So what was Borlock's work? Change the plant. What is a militarized mind's work? Change the society. You know, invade, dominate. What is the scientist's work? Find out and coexist and co-evolve. That is good science. Bad science is militaristic. Bad science is change the object rather than understand the object. So he changed the plants. He made the dwarf varieties. How did he make the dwarf varieties? There was no genetic engineering then. What there was was stolen, stolen varieties during the war. A norin wheat from Japan. And that's what Borlaug worked on. He was put to work in what then became the Maize and Rice Institute in Mexico, CIMIT, but it was a small research station. So here's a military man from a DuPont defense lab, who's DuPont, one of the four poison cartels, worked with IG Farben during the war. DuPont bought, uh, emerged with Dow, Dow bought Union Carbide, Union Carbide killed people in my country in Bhopal in 1984. So. How do I get into this picture? 84, Punjab, the land where Borlaug's ex violent experiment has been imposed, has erupted in violence. And uh, Bhopal has had a disaster. 1984, Orwellian 84. And I was working for the United Nations on peace and conflicts over resources, on, uh, on ecological conflicts. And I said to them, here's a conflict. You know, forest conflicts you see, river conflicts you see. Here's a conflict. Yeah, there's many layers to it, and I want to study it. So I did a book for the United Nations called The Violence of the Green Revolution, which is where I studied Bhopal, um, Borlaug's doing. And I wanted to find out, you know, my mother had chosen to be a farmer. I knew farming, but there was no literature on indigenous farming till I found Howell's book. So Howard introduced me to my own land through the lens of a scientist. And the two personalities, you ask such an important question. The two personalities show us the two ways of doing science, the two ways of doing agriculture. And today, the 1984 protests were farmers' protests. The same farmers today are old white beards sitting in Delhi. 84 to today, they're still fighting for the rights and fighting for justice. Because sadly, people like Borlaug took war chemicals and brought them to agriculture and turned agriculture like war and a war against the farmers and the land. And 
when you hear the farmers who are protesting, they say, we are not fighting for a petty little increase in income. We are fighting for the soul and soil of India. And that is what Harvard understood. Back in 2013, I think, Wendell Berry spoke with Bill Moyers at St. Catherine College in Kentucky. And I think you were in, you were in attendance when he said, we don't have the right to ask whether we're going to succeed or not. The only question we have a right to ask is what's the right thing to do? What does the earth require of us if we want to continue to live in it? And I've been thinking about that quote as I've been reading about the farmer protests in India that you just mentioned. Millions of farmers are rising up against laws that favor corporate colonialist interests. Can you help us better understand what these farmers today are resisting and, and why? Wendell's quote is so, so much, the Gita, you know, the Gita is the distillation of learning of Indian civilization. And it basically says exactly what he said. You know, life is not about winning and losing. Life is not about success and defeat. Life is about finding the right action, but you can only find your right action when you have the right relationships. And that right action then is living well, living the good life. Why are the farmers on the street? Because they have undertaken the right action, not in a knee-jerk reaction, but the fact that A, they have, Punjab farmers have suffered the most. These protests first began in Punjab. Punjab farmers have suffered the most because of Borlaug's experiment on the Green Revolution. And our prime minister of that time said, this is too, too big. Let me just take a little step back. We had a drought in 65 and India needed a little more wheat to regulate prices, not because people were starving to death, because in those days it was still the case that farmers held their crops. We didn't have commodification of our food. So the laborers who were building the big new cities and industrial centers were going back home to say this food is too expensive. So to stabilize prices, we needed a little more wheat imports. And the United States, who was by then involved in pushing the Green Revolution, said, we will not send you wheat. And sadly, it was Lyndon Johnson who called this a peace program and really sent seeds of violence, insisted, insisted that India must introduce chemicals in agriculture. Lal Bahadur Shastri, our prime minister, refused. He died mysteriously in Tashkent during peace talks with Pakistan in 1965, 66. And then the next year, the Green Revolution was pushed on Punjab. Why Punjab? Building on the best was their slope. Why was Punjab the best? Because we had ruled, been ruled by the British and the British were becoming landlords. Yeah and introducing rent collectors all over the place. The Punjab farmers fought, the Northwest farmers of the richest soil of the world, the Indo-Gangetic Plain fought and said, no, we are owner cultivators. We will not become serfs on other people's lands. And laws were passed then, it's called the Land Alienation Act, that no matter how indebted a farmer is, their animals, their house, and their land can never be taken away. So this whole issue of landlordism couldn't enter this region. So it's still not dispossessed like Bihar and Bengal through the Zamidari. And so when Borlaug brings the Green Revolution, this is where it's imposed. I did my MSc honors in particle physics at the University of Punjab. So I've known this state. Prosperous, peaceful, you know, the Bhangra is the land of the Bhangra. Um, 
joyous people. And then by 84, eruption of violence. 1984, 4th of June, the farmers had said, we are going to blockade the supply of grain. And then the army was sent to the Golden Temple, the sacred shrine of the Sikhs. And that year then, you know, Indira Gandhi was assassinated. And you know, I said, what is this violence? Where does this violence come from? And that's how I started to understand the Green Revolution. But I also started to learn the roots of the farmers' protests. And I started to seek nonviolent ways of farming, which shaped my life since then. Otherwise, you know, I was a quantum theorist. And my mind was busy figuring out how things work in complexity, self-organization, non-separation. So the protests of today are building on 84. What, what happened then is the global system organized to give it a media spin. It was a farmer's protest. It was called a religious protest. No religious was fighting another religion. No one. The killings were around who was controlling the seeds, who was controlling the water, who, you know? It, these were killings around control. And the farmers were calling the slavery. But the spin was, oh, 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 sick extremists, wantings, you know. A whole spin was given. That spin is being used again. Who pushes chemical agriculture? The globally organized regime of Hitler's time. I.G. Farben and the American companions, the Monsantos, the DuPonts, the same people, the Rockefellers, same people. They are hugely organized in terms of the media story. 1991, the World Bank, which gave us the loans for the Green Revolution, says you are now indebted. One third of the loans of 90 billion was our debt. You got to change your systems. You got to change your agriculture. They forced us to change our agriculture to the Green Revolution. Now they're forcing us to say, you have to change everything to become a global commodity producing system. And they wanted a dismantling of the Essential Commodities Act that regulates prices, are markets which regulate prices and give access to farmers, where farmers and traders have joined cooperative to govern these markets. A story that's not told. And more importantly, no trader can have stocks beyond a certain limit. There's stockholding limits. So these are called APMC, and they wanted corporations to enter. By then, I had entered the discussion, not only because of the Green Revolution in Punjab, but 87, the Monsantos and Sibagaigis of the world were saying, we'll own the seed through genetic engineering and patenting. And we'll have an international law of the GATT, which became WTO to impose it on the world. I said, A, you don't impose, uh, invent the seed. Seed is not your invention. Two, you cannot make it illegal for us to save seeds. This is our dharma. It's our duty to save seeds. We will not do something against our very ethics and faith. And we will stay sovereign. So I started the seed saving movement in 87. But because of what they had said, I started to monitor GATT. In 91, the GATT agreement was leaked. We called it the DDT because it's, you know, the Secretary General then was Dunkel. And so it was called the Dunkel draft text, called it DDT. I took this, translated it, traveled the country, told farmers they want to own the seed. Farmers rose everywhere. We had rallies. 500,000 in, in Bangalore in the year 1992 or 93, Hoshu. Ho and we, we just had rally and rally and rally. Two in the red, in Delhi, 200,000 and 300,000. The children of those farmers who worked with me in the 90s against these same 
policies are today leading the protests. So these laws were put in place in 91. It's just that they couldn't become legal because people would rise. Parliament would debate. And then the corona, you know, the little, little virus has been used by all kinds of forces around the world to do what they could never have done when debate was vibrant and when people have their say. So this was brought as an ordinance on World Environment Day, 5th of June, and turned into a law without debate. And the farmers, the minute it became a law, the farmers are rising. So it's not today's laws. These are 1991 World Bank conditionalities. And we have lived through too long the costs of conditionalities in the third world to not know what it means. These are not a sovereign country making law. This is basically new imperialism. The World Bank IMF GATT came out of the Bretton Woods. Yeah, 1944, money men of the world meet. How to keep the third world enslaved and keep extracting money. These are institutions to keep the old, old colonial enterprise going with new names and new forms. So uh, the farmers are, are protesting colonialism, the Green Revolution, the World Bank structural adjustment, the WTO free trade rules. All of this has added layers over time, but the struggle is still the old struggle, the land and livelihoods. In my mind, India is sort of the birthplace of modern resistance to corporate and imperialist power. I take a lot of inspiration from the spirit of rebellion and protest that I see embodied in these millions of farmers who are standing up. So Ben, the story of colonialism is the story of India and the story of decolonization is the story of India. Let's not forget that the British Empire grew out of a piece of paper, the charter given by East in Queen Elizabeth to 300 merchant adventurers of that time. Basically, you know, the people who, who would go out, the pirates of that time, and, um, and colonize the world. And the charter says exactly what the Colombian charter says. You know, go find lands and, and conquer them and have your military and have your power. And, uh, and the, the limited company was invented through the creation of the East India Company, that if, if the Profits come back, the spices and the silks, they're ours. And, um, and if the Dutch fight our ship and take the uh, spices, uh, then the cost will be borne by society, who will still pay us. So we will never lose. A limited liability company is we never lose. You know, the corporations never lose. There's a socialization of costs. And the corporations are moving very fast into zero cost, you know, zero liability. If you see the language zero is popping up. And, and you, we, everyone who's concerned should look at zero, which also comes from India and then went through the Arab world to the West. <laughs> the word zero is coming up too frequently now. Zero budget, uh, zero cost, zero carbon, zero COVID, you know. I mean, I tell you, <laughs> coronas have to live. You know, they've always been around. They didn't make us sick. This sickness is what we should understand and not say, ah, oh, zero. But coming back to your question. So in East India companies created 1600. They come with military force. And by 1757, I think they invade Bengal, the richest part, because all the soils of the Himalaya go and deposit there. Four seasons of cultivation, very, very abundant land. And that's when the rule over India begins. In a century, they have impoverished peasants. 
uh, through extraction. You know, it was called lagan, basically rent collection from the land. Initially, it was half the produce, and then they started to insist that half the produce value in cash. And this killed our peasants. 60 million died during British rules. $45 trillion was extracted from this plant by the British. 1857, farmers were leading the protest now. Their ancestors rose up and rose up and said, we will not be ruled this way. And you know what the because it was a brutal system. If you if they heard you talk about freedom, they hung you on a tree. I have been introduced to so many trees and villages where they say, and 200 were hung on this one, and 500 were hung on this one in the public square. So others would shut up. You know how the Indian peasants spread the movement? Through bread. The bread, if I gave you bread, Ben, and you accepted it, you have joined the freedom movement. And I believe the lesson for the world is our bread is our freedom today everywhere. And I would invite, I would say to Chelsea and to you and to Acres and to everyone around the world, let us on 16th October, which is World Food Day, make bread, share bread and say we will never let it be stolen. But let me come back to complete the story of the Indian peasantry. They absolutely refused to be ruled and East India Company was folded up. Indian peasantry led to the end of East India Company. It's not told in history. Why? Because the British wrote the history and called it the Sepoy Mutiny. You see, of course, a few people who were working for them in their private army rose in rebellion also. But they were children or, or they were farmers also. Yeah? But they only told. So the distortion in 84, oh, this is a religious conflict. The distortion today is it's about one place, one religion. No, it's and now the spin being given by the global media is, oh, it's an international conspiracy against India. And I won't go into that mess of Twitter files and the cases in India about a singer called Rihanna and a little girl called Greta. I mean, all this has entered the farmers debate to spin a story of global conspiracy. If there is a global conspiracy, it is the continuation of IG Father. It is the continuation of East India Company. Peasants of India fighting each stage of that and all people of the world rising to resist the colonization of the seed and the colonization of our food. And the last chapter of my book then is the distillation of my own learning from India's defense of freedom. Three principles, Swaraj, self-rule, self-organization. That's how living systems work. Swadeshi, making your own thing, making local. Local living economies will have to be built back because the global commodity supply chains are killing this planet. And then third, the most important, Satyagraha, the fight for truth. Be guided by your truth and recognize that your truth and your conscience are the highest powers in the universe. There is no power bigger than that. Never be afraid, do not cooperate with injustice, do not create, cooperate with dictatorship, do not cooperate, withdraw your support. And that withdrawal of support is the highest rebellion. We're gonna hit pause on this interview for a brief segment from our sponsor, Barn to Door. Hey, this is Sebastian from Barn to Door. 
We're excited to be sharing a new series of Farmer Spotlights during the Tractor Time podcast in segments like these. In today's Farmer Spotlight, we have Joelle Orem of Orem Farms in Kokomo, Indiana. We asked Joelle about her experience in selling direct using Barn to Door. And here's what she had to say. Yeah, working with Barn to Door has been great. They really directed us and helped us uh, build out our website. And it's been a really big time saver for us because the way that we were <laughs> taking orders previously was just, it was very time consuming. I think we were using PayPal and it was just really clunky and the way that we had to collect money and stuff. Our Barn to Door team has just, has really listened to our brand and our story and taken that and made a beautiful platform for us that we are proud to send our customers to, frankly. They've all found it very easy to use. We love that we can stay in touch with our customers right through our Barn to Door account, through the message feature, things like that. Something that we've really enjoyed is just the support that they've offered. I can jump on a chat and answer a question real quick if I have it. And my my husband's able to look up orders very quickly and keep everything in tune with our butcher schedules and things like that. I'd say it's been a really great experience. If you want to hear more about Joelle's story, go to barntodoor.com slash tractor time. Thanks for listening. Here in the U.S., the Second World War is a story of heroism, of good versus evil, but really its legacy, particularly when it comes to agriculture, is far more complicated than that. So, you know, when I was doing my book on the Green Revolution, I had to go to the roots. Where did these chemicals come from? You know, I grew up on my mother's farm. <laughs> no chemicals. Where did they come from? And that's when I, again, tried to reach, read everything. In Hitler's Germany, all was being given by Rockefeller. Gas and oil were being given by Rockefeller, who at that point had made themselves a monopoly. Yeah, And this was then being blasted at very high temperature to fix atmospheric nitrogen to make explosives. But the same process also gave you the fertilizer. That's why we have so many fertilizer bombs. Oklahoma bombing, Oslo bombing, all the bombings of Afghanistan, bombings in India, the Beirut blast where a fertilizer warehouse exploded and killed 200 people, all fertilizer as explosive. So there's no difference. That. The explosives became fertilizers and, and gases, the, the science and technology of making gases to kill people in the concentration camps, like Zyklon B, poison gases, then became the science to create pesticides. So earlier, uh, a, a fascist thinking, a Nazi thinking, defined some human beings as inferior and some human beings as superior, and then used the chemical industry knowledge of the IG Farben, the money and fossil fuels of Rockefeller, uh, and the partnerships between Monsanto and Bayer, Morbay. There was a company called Morbay. They're back. Bayer has bought Monsanto. So at one level, think of it, the, think of the irony. That war period is being recreated both in terms of corporate concentration, in terms of a unity of purpose of the globally organized poison cartel, I call it. So it came out of a global partnership of hate, extermination, and the use of science for killing.
all of this surplus then gets left. But by then, you know, Hitler has been finished. All of this moves to the United States. It's not that it was a, the, the US corporations weren't there. They were always part of ID Farben. They were always part of that experiment. And I, you know, in, in writing this book, I think I've read five more books on the Nuremberg trials and all of these linkages. It's all there in record. It's all there to be proven. Interestingly, another level of Hitler's experiment was basically calling other humans inferior, yeah? And, uh, and not worthy, you know, parasites, parasites that need to be exterminated. And he basically saw it as a cleaning, yeah. But then the atmosphere changed, but the same scientists who moved to America, then Rockefeller adopted them to create what Lily Kay has written about, the Harvard um, historian of science, right. and a book called Molecular Vision of Life gives you all the details how Rockefeller, who was working in Germany, now continued the Nazi project and made it science and basically said, if we talk about skin color, they'll say biological determinism is wrong. But now we talk about the genes. And there was no gene at that time. No one knew what it is, but they called it the atom of determinism. And the project was called social psychology. So it all of that then continued. Today, what do we see in agriculture? We see the same companies poisoning the world. Every day we get news, monarch butterfly gone, bees disappearing, persons, 200,000 persons dying of poisoning every year, children dying of cancer. This is a global story. The second, everywhere people are fighting against GMOs. And there's a push again for GMOs. And the new player is the player I've written about in the book. Um, Bill Gates is now a big player. I definitely want to get to him. I, I have a few questions on that. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's really important maybe to stop and dwell a little bit on genetic determinism, which is a really important concept for people to understand. And I think it's one of the most eye-opening sections of the book. This is really an ideology that forces life itself into a mechanical mold. And, you know, I still hear people today blaming health issues on quote unquote bad genes. And I was really just gobsmacked how much this way of thinking, genetic determinism, is really a legacy of, you know, eugenics still playing out today, um, as you just alluded to earlier. Talk a little bit more about genetic determinism and, and how that shapes the way that we're approaching agriculture and a whole host of other issues. For me, looking at issues of genetic genetics, genetic determinism, began with that 1987 meeting where the poison cartel is saying that it brought us the chemical skill, is saying we need to make money now from seed by genetically modifying seed and taking a patent on it and having international free trade agreements to force people to not have their own seat. So I had to start studying. And, you know, the good thing with the human mind is, you know, I've never had a class in biology. I was so passionate about math and physics. I'd never studied biology. But the good thing is that you can study even when you're old, you know. And, and I feel I'm just entering the 
a new lesson in education every day, every day on the farm. The leaves grow in a different way. It's such a beautiful world we live in. And there's no end of learning. There's no limit to learning. So I started to learn. And I couldn't believe the rubbish that was written about the chemical agriculture in the Green Revolution. The soil is an empty container into which you pour, pour, pour synthetic fertilizer. Now the soil is an amazing biodiversity of living organisms that create the soil fertility and the synthetic fertilizers kill the soil fertility and they emit greenhouse gases and they create Z zones and they create nitrate pollution. How could we be so wrong? Or the idea that there's an atom making determination. When we know li all living systems are complex systems of interaction where the DNA is one little component, totally inert, gets activated by others. And each so-called gene has multiple functions and can behave differently according to the complex of which it is a part. That's why you have gene silencing. That's why you have to have gene promoters in genetic engineering. Each GMO is not this gene moved there and did this. No, the plant did it. Yeah, The plant grew the cotton. You shoot a gene for Bt toxin, but you can't shoot it just like that. You have to have a vector. But because the plant doesn't want it, it'll reject it. So you have to have an antibiotic resistance marker and then it'll silence it. So you have to have a viral promoter. So every GMO has three unknown elements added, and there's no understanding of how they interact, which is why they signed so many unpredictable effects, so much failure, all GMOs have failed. BT Cotton has failed, Roundup Ready has failed. They're constantly having to bring new technologies, and the new technology is gene editing, which is even bigger failure because you're behaving even more stupid thinking that living systems in their complexity are a word program of cut and paste. You can cut from here and put it there and there'll be no consequence. So where did genetic determinism come from? I talked about Lily Kay's book, brilliant book. I would say everyone should read it, but it has become a very useful way of both the continuation of eugenics when it is not acceptable anymore socially, politically, but also a way of controlling food and health. You know, Big Pharma is Rockefeller origin. Big Food is Rockefeller. So they just created different streams and we each link, we are in our silos, the movements are in silos. The destroyers are unified. If you think of it, when you said, everything is genetic roots. I think two years ago, I was asked by the Indian Cancer Society to give the keynote for the annual meeting. And by then I'd been helping a lot with the cancer cases on glyphosate. I'd done a lot of research, written a lot of forwards to many of my friends who have written books on all of this. And we know that only 5% cancers are genetic. 95% come from toxics. We know this scientifically. I gave my talk, I explained why cancers are exploding in societies because cancer creating substances are spreading in our food and agriculture one after the other, every woman who was a member of this society, usually coming out of breast cancer. Oh, I thought it was in my genes. Oh, I was told it's in my genes. So the story of genetic determinism is not just a useful story for 
treating some humans as inferior. And I would say to the Black Lives Matter, you want to fight racism, fight it through the construction of the racist story of genetic determinism. That's where it begins. Then fight those who created the story. Fight the poison cartel. Fight the Rockefellers. Fight the Gates, because they're keeping this new eugenics alive. But it is also the new economic enterprise because by creating genetic reductionism, you do three things. India evolved all those amazing rices, including salt tolerant and flood tolerant rices that are in Navdanya's gene banks. Bill Gates comes a few years ago and says, we've invented the gene for flood tolerance. We've invented the gene. First of all, complex systems, complex traits have no one gene. But secondly, even if there was one gene, you didn't create it. The plant created, the farmers who evolved it created, the indigenous people created it. So basically genetic reductionism becomes a very convenient way for the new piracy. If earlier the land was grabbed, now the plants and biodiversity are being stolen. But the second is you take problems you have caused, you gave the cancer, but you march ahead and say, I'll give you the cancer cure through a new genetic therapy. And the third, of course, is you kill the true systems of knowing in holistic ways of, you know, if my book's title is Oneness versus One Percent, oneness for me is also a way of looking. It's non-separability. It's seeing relationships. And genetic reductionism means shut down any knowing. So it is really the death of knowledge. And, you know, I've done so this work now since 87. I've made friends with some of the best molecular biologists of the world, the best genetic engineers of the world who know what they know without genetic determinism. In fact, they've written some of the best books against genetic determinism. The good scientists know that you can't put it all in the gene. The bad propagandists. You know, what you have right now is in the name of science, there's propaganda. And the propaganda is basically facilitating the expansion of the Mali machine and shutting down those who do the real science. They went after Eric Serolini, who did the first studies on cancer, and then the WHO reaffirmed it. Then they went after WHO. So, uh, you know, I've, I've had my share. I'm not a geneticist. I do ecological studies. Uh, I did the studies on farmer suicides. And I've been, I, I know I know through life's experience how this propaganda machine works. I could give you the names of each of the, the the propagandists they hire. And it's the same people who attack all of us and the same people who change our Wikipedia pages. We live in, in an interesting world. And I have survived it for many decades. And I still take joy in saving seeds. And I take joy in good farming. And I take the deepest joy in deep learning. Well, so we talked about one kind of determinism, but also in the book, you talk about mechanistic reductionism. And this really is the religion of the 1%. Um, you write in your book, separation is a worldview, a paradigm, an ideology, a way of seeing, and a way of shaping the world, both in our minds and in nature and society through violence. Explain what you mean by that. I think this is a really important concept for listeners to understand, um, because I, I really, I feel like this is one of the key tenets of sort of the 1%. This really informs their entire worldview. It's all a machine. I and mean, the metaphor of natural systems are like machines becomes this ideological claim that natural systems are machines. And if you just have enough data, you can control them. 
this is a, a religious pursuit. It's not scientific. Would you agree? I would totally agree. Uh, you know, I'm fortunate that I studied physics. And in my study of physics, I realized the deeper knowledge was the quantum worldview. It wasn't classical mechanics. So I did my PhD in the foundations of quantum theory and understood this whole issue of non-separation and understood how the mechanistic worldview was a very, very narrow, very short period of time, very small group of people. But I really returned to this in a, in, in a new way when I became a volunteer for the Chipko movement, this amazing movement of women in my region hugging trees become even more relevant. The village where this movement started is the village which has had a disaster because they're building dams on every inch of our rivers, our sacred rivers, our mother Ganga. But that's another story. So everywhere women were rising to protect, of course, definitely the mountain forests, rivers, Bhopal, it was the women who rose. And I wrote my book, Staying Alive. And I wanted to understand, I said, why do the women rise? And where did the science they're fighting come from? Just like I wanted to understand in Punjab, where did the chemicals come from? And I found out the, the poison cartel and idiofarbon. And then I read every book. I read every text of the mechanistic philosophy founders, the Bacons, who, taught, who wrote a book, The Masculine Birth of Time, and said, we have to subjugate nature. Until that time, we realized we are part of nature. The idea of separation was constructed, and it was part of not just a religious enterprise, Bacon was deeply religious, Descartes was deeply religious. These were the people who constructed the mechanistic philosophy, but it was part of the empire building. They were facilitating the empire. Because what happens if, if something is interconnected, then, and I know the interconnection, I will respect it. I will live with those interconnections. But if I'm an empire builder, and I want just one part of that interconnected system, I just want the gold, or I just want the indigo, then I must rupture those relationships, reduce them to that one little part, which is what mechanistic philosophy allows me to do. And then mechanistic philosophy allows me to extract that part and rupture the rest. This is why we have an ecological crisis, because extractivism became the basis of coal and oil and gas and the continuation of extractivism. But extractivism is the basis of the money machine. You know, people fight over words about the system. It isn't a system. It's a money machine that has no idea of what it's doing. The people who benefit from it, no. Yeah. But even they don't really know what they're doing. The dam builders who are making money in the Himalaya have no idea how fragile that mountain they're blasting with dynamite is. They have no idea that a spring died. They have no idea they will leave 200 people dead. They have no idea. So it is really extractivism is based on mechanistic science, mechanistic mind, feeds the money machine and leaves ruins for the rest. And this irresponsibility for the ruins you've left is what we tried to correct with the polluter pays, but they've cut it. And it also creates a culture of one way governance. I don't have responsibility. If you come back to what Wendell Berry said in St. Catherine, all I have 
is a duty to know what the right thing to do. But the right thing to do means I must know what I'm doing. I must know what its consequences for others are. And it totally shifts your consciousness to holding things together rather than extracting. And that's why the word dharma, which is another word for what Wendell was talking about, dharma means that which holds together. A dharma is that which tears apart. The mechanistic mind, the extractivist money machine, is really an adharmic enterprise whose religion is adharma, whose religion is violate all religions, whose religion is violate nature's laws, whose religion is violate the right to live of all people, violate human rights, violate social justice. It is a war. Okay, Bill Gates. We're finally going to get to him. He's such a, he's a, he's such a, <laughs> yeah. a, a looming figure in your book, and he's a very polarizing figure. You have to kind of be careful uh, how you talk about him in public because people uh, will dub you a conspiracy theorist. Uh, but in fact, as you outline the book, he's very open about what he's involved in, what he's doing, where his money is going. He's got kind of a hand in everything. He's on television fairly frequently here in the States because of his involvement in uh, creating what he calls software for life, which are, you know, the vaccines that are being developed. And you mentioned him quite a bit in the book in a whole host of ways. But one entry point I thought for talking about him might be a recent news development on the cover of the latest issue of the Land Report magazine is the the face of Bill Gates. And in the bottom left-hand corner is the headline, Meet Farmer Bill. And I don't think he does much farming, but uh, he did, however, become the biggest private owner of agricultural land in the U.S. He owns nearly 250,000 acres of prime farmland now. And, you know, the headlines announcing this news were, were pretty breathless. Newsweek said, Bill Gates, sustainable agriculture champion, is America's biggest farmland owner. And successful farming declared, Bill Gates is about to change the way America farms. He's such a, a, a sort of dominating figure in the book. So it's sort of hard to know where to start with him, but I thought we would start with his involvement in agriculture. Um, what would you like to say and let people know about his involvement there? So I basically uh, wrote the book because I saw Bill Gates emerge at the 2015 Paris summit as more powerful than the elected heads of state. He was basically giving instruction to them. And he was, he and Zuckerberg, we're running the show. And that's when, you know, I, I decided I needed to understand, A, how powerful he had become and how he became powerful. Fortunately, I've been involved enough in GATT and WTO to know that the first WTO ministerial, he managed to get tax-free status for information uh, transactions. And he, he moved, uh, you know, his, his basic empire was built through free trade in information. No taxes paid. And then, of course, since then, we've had so much more that he pays no taxes. I also experienced how he was getting into Indian agriculture, financing an entire mining of data. You know, there's something called digital green. He finances where basically people are sent to farmers' homes and they mine the data. What do you do? You know, how do you thresh? How do you cook? How, how do you do them? How do you save seeds? And all that data is then siphoned off. This is the new extractivism. Yeah. Right. Data is the new extractivism. So he had already entered here. But La, and in my book, I've talked about his new, he launched a whole new thing. At that point, he didn't call it, he called it one agriculture. 
And he took all of the agricultural research institutes of the world and put them into one. Yeah. But last year, just before COVID started, he launched this program in a more formal way called Gates Ag One called Gates Ag One, One Agriculture for This World of Diversity, where every farming system is different. So many different crops are grown. So many varieties of different crops are grown. And a farmer in the desert of Rajasthan or in Sahara is very different from a farmer from the wetlands or backwaters of Kerala. Yeah, You need totally almost from my mountain terrace farms of my sisters up in the hills. It's one agriculture. So, you know, if you work from the soil, the soil creates different conditions. The soil is different. The climate is different. You have diversity of agriculture. When you work from the top, you can have one agriculture. So what is Bill Gates Ag One? Element number one, seed. Bill Gates is the biggest seed owner of the world now. He's, of course, the biggest landlord in America. But you have to have seed to grow food. The institutions that were created at the time of the Green Revolution, where our rice was taken by the World Bank and put into Erie, wheats were taken, put into Simit, dry crops were taken, put into Icrisan, all of these, it's called the Consultative Group of International Agricultural Research, is now controlled by Bill Gates. And those who want to know more about this, please read our report, Gates to a Global Empire. And this is all data published by him and others. So the seed. Number two, agriculture itself. How do you produce food? He wants farming without farmers. And that's why the whole issue of digital farming. And, but but can, a, can a surveillance system in the sky come and take care of your soil? No, it cannot. It can only mine data. And initially, it'll sell that big data to farmers who will be indebted new. And that's why he's creating amazing partnerships with Slim in Mexico with Geo in India, who control the telecom systems and the digital systems. And basically the smartphone will become the new external input. If earlier they forced you to buy chemical fertilizers, now it'll be you've got to have big data. Big data is the new fertilizer of the mind, synthetic fertilizer of the mind. And they're making it, they're creating a whole imagination that this will grow more food, the same Falsehood that somehow chemical fertilizers grew more yields. Borlaug grew more yields. I've had debates with Borlaug's people where I said, but that rice and wheat increase because you grow only rice and wheat. You destroy biodiversity, you will have more rice and wheat, and you provided more irrigation. I said, I can do that with native wheats, and we've done research that native wheats organically grown with that much monocultures and that much irrigation water would grow the same amount. It wasn't a miracle seed but they are making the yield mystic come back again. But yield has nothing to do with agriculture. It's an extractive system. Yield is what you take out. Good farming is what you leave behind in the soil. Nutritious crops is what you leave in a society. That's why I've shifted to nutrition and food and health per acre rather than yield per acre. And our Navdanya research shows we can feed two times India's population. We can feed two times the world population with an agriculture of love and care. Gates wants an agriculture of ignorance, indifference, violence to continue. He's got partnerships with Bayer. Bayer and all are already preparing GMOs in bigger scales to be monitored 
with the surveillance systems and digital agriculture. But the third is food. He's not even leaving food behind. So everyone's heard about the impossible burger. Everyone's hearing about fake food. But Bill Gates and the Silicon Valley giants and big tech are the big drivers for making it impossible to have real food. They call it farm-free food, and they're creating another spin. Oh, to save the earth. Got to get farmers off the land. Got to stop producing food. The Great Reset. So farming without farmers and food without farms is their dream. Our commitment is farming with care. Let's all be farmers. Real food is a right because food from the soil through the plants to our gut is the reason we are healthy. The true software of health is living food. The malware of health that has created chronic diseases, the pandemic, the COVID, I've written about all of this in many of my books. This comes from treating food as a commodity and using technologies of ignorance and violence to produce this commodity. Gates is just taking the wrong path faster. And he thinks going faster on the wrong path will get him to a better place. No, we've got to change the path. Lots of people have shown this path. People like Wendell Berry are such gurus in your land. And uh, I think it is time for all of us to realize that A, real food is our right to health. Two, growing food is our duty. Three, the challenge we face, whether in India or in America, is the same challenge because those controlling our systems are the same people. Let us not be divided. Let's be one and rise against the 1%. Well said. Dr. Shiva, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. There you have it. Go buy Oneness versus the 1% at theacresusa.com bookstore. Use the code FEBPOD, that's F-E-B-P-O-D, for 10% off on all titles. You should also visit navdanya.org to find out more about the essential work they're doing and how you can support it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA and Barn to Door. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on acresusa.com, ecofarmingdaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks for listening and have a great week.